What's up, everybody? Not much. What's up, dude? All right. Um, so, if you weren't here last month at this space, um, uh, Karan, who some of you might know, he gave a talk about uh, Black Lives Matter and that movement and his experience as um, a black man in this country. And it was a very real and raw and um, honest conversation. And um, part of what we care about here at Root Branch and what we're doing, um, we think issues like this can't, cannot be separated from a religious perspective or a spiritual one that places like the church should really be at um, uh, places that really engage these topics head on. Uh, and so I'm going to talk a little bit about some of those things today. This is I want, it's a bit of a caveat, right? But this is like a very ongoing process. Like not, you know, race, race things are very complicated. And there's nothing I could say in you know, 10, 15 minutes today that is going to solve any problems. But um, it's going to be part of an ongoing thing, right? We address one thing and we keep moving. And, um, I'm hoping we can get somewhere where um, we actually take some action as well. So, whenever I talk about uh, race as it relates to my experience, I always bring up the fact that when I moved to Chicago, um, things changed for me immensely. And obviously, like going to a new place in a new city is one thing, but I grew up in Southern California in uh, near LA, the suburbs of LA. And you all know that Southern California in particular had vast amounts of Asian immigration in the 70s and 80s, uh, so much so that many immigrant kids, myself included, uh, we would grow up with social networks comprised basically of people who look like us. You could really just sort of exist in your own ethnic space, uh, the school you went to, where you would shop, where you would eat, like really um, in a homogenous area. And so prior to moving here, I, I, I say this quite literally, had no close non-Asian friends, zero. I mean, of course, like there were some people like, you know, Chad or whatever I, was, yeah. I knew, um, play baseball with or whatever, but like I had no good, like really good friends. Uh, if you were ever, um, like it was so, like, you know, in ho you have homeroom in high school and our homeroom was had its own room just for people with the last name Kim. That's how, uh, how many Asians were. And so I like to joke about the fact that if you go and if you ever stalk me on Facebook, which I highly recommend, um, and you go and look through my pictures, you'll see a very strange shift, which is my hairstyle always changes. But uh, in the beginning, you'll see me and you'll see me and like all these Asian people. We're hanging out, doing things that college kids do or whatever, and it's Asians and Asians and Asians, and then about 2009, uh, you start seeing like Neil's picture there, and like uh, basically everyone around me changes into white people, and some black people, right? So that's how it's like stark. Right when I moved to Chicago, the starkness of that, that change was, was uh, immense. Yeah. Neil actually, you know, along with being my co-pastor and longtime roommate, was, was like, I think my first or second white friend I've ever made um, and he has since influenced my perspective of all white people uh, because of that. Happy to represent <laughs> and I also came to, I came to Chicago, as you know, to go to grad school, went to University of Chicago Divinity School. And I remember the first day I was there, um, there's a conference room with this big table. There's like 14 of us there. And I sat down. I remember looking around the room and being like, oh shit, everybody here 
is white. Uh, no one looks like me, right? And it was like, um, I mean, eventually one other person of color would join the group and we'd become allies for one another. But like at that moment, I was like, this is a different reality for me. There's a lot of facets that go into that uh, transition, that change for me that I could talk about. But the one I want to focus on today is this. When I started hanging around with white folks, I noticed something very strange, which is that uh, white folks, to me, seemed very, uh, not comfortable, but they seemed like they would allow themselves to make Asian jokes, right? And I was like, you know, my, you know throughout my life, like I've been in experiences like most people of color where you walk down the street or you're at a bar and some like creep like says some weird racist thing to you. Um, and you know, whenever that happened, I always just chalked it up to like dude bros uh, being dude bros. But here in this context, right, I'm not talking about uh, the bar bros, I'm talking about people, white people, uh, people who go to University of Chicago Divinity School, uh, people who are ministers, colleagues of mine, uh, mentors of mine. I'm talking about educated and thoughtful and progressive liberal white folks. These people uh, would make those kinds of jokes to me uh, in a way that was weird. It was very strange. I think that's actually a very particular uh, truth about being Asian American in America, which is that um, Asianness is not regarded in the same way as other, I think, minorities. And so, you know, recently I, I don't know if you uh, are into politics, but Mike Huckabee, great guy, one of my favorites, uh, <laughs> Republican presidential candidate, he tweeted out uh, during the last Democratic debate, right, this stupid joke about how like Koreans eat dogs, uh, which is, you know, just for being unoriginal, not funny, but like it was, it was. It was just like such an easy joke, right? And I saw that like no one really got upset though, right? I, I think I saw like maybe one article that was like, that was not cool. And Mike Huckabee himself was like, it was a joke and it was funny, so I don't really feel bad about it, right? And that's the sort of thing that I'm talking about, right? That Asian Americans have a particular place in our society where we're not like, it's okay to take a shit on us in some ways and, um, and that we're somehow okay with that, right? And I'd venture to guess most of these, like again, these people I'm talking about, these uh, thoughtful and educated progressive folks would never dare make uh, a black joke, for example, to a black person's face like that, right? They'd be, to them, that would be like, oh, that would be mortifying, right? But to me, to say something to me about, uh, you know, you could think of whatever those jokes might have been, like math jokes or karate jokes or math jokes. Um, <laughs> I would sit there, I would hear them, and then sometimes I would just like smile and grimace, or I would uh, call that person out once in a while, or sometimes I would even laugh, because like, you know, I'm a, I'm a chill dude, like I can laugh if it's actually a good joke, but uh, most of the time they're pretty um, not funny. And the thing that sticks out to me in that experience, right, this context where one is supposed to feel like I'm in a safer space somehow, or like this is an area that I shouldn't have to experience this sort of thing, that no matter what I do, uh, as a person of color, I exist in a world that I in some way have no control over, that my existence uh, comes ahead of me in a way that is uh, harmful. Recently, I was talking to a, an Asian friend of mine about race stuff, 
And he said to me an interesting comment, which was, there's nothing that liberal white people hate more than being called a racist, right? Like the one thing you could say to like a liberal white person, they're like, that really like gets, gets at them, you know? I don't know exactly if that's the worst thing you could say, but I would venture to guess there's like a lot of truth in that statement, right? That uh, this article, if you guys saw the email this week, I linked to an article, I quoted from it uh, by this writer, John Meta, and he re recounts a story where his aunt, um, who is white, and he's black. His aunt, in a conversation, someone mentioned that uh, she, she probably was racist because she was right, white. And she was very upset about that accusation. So upset that she would keep bringing up that, that comment for years afterwards. Um, and that suggestion, right, because she, and this is a quote here, she who is a northerner, a liberal, a good person who has black family members, right, a suggestion that someone like that could be racist really... Uh, she couldn't believe it, right? She couldn't accept that truth. I myself have had many conversations like this with, uh, with white folks about racism being an inherent part of our consciousness and our political structure and our economic structure. And a lot of them will say like, but I'm not racist, right? They'll still give me this line, I'm not racist. And the ironic thing is they often say it after they say a racist joke to me about something like that, right? They'll make an Asian joke and I'll be like, hey man, that's not cool. Like, no man, but I'm not racist. You know, uh, it's like a weird, it's like some weird like performance art going on when they do that. But when we are in a church context, uh, again, we could talk about race stuff in a lot of, through a lot of different lenses, but uh, we, in a church context, I think should address the question theologically. And I think that's going to be helpful. So just to make a point, I think it's really important that the way that you organize a question or um, or come to name a question actually affects the reality of that question. So to give you an example, I don't know why I chose this example, but it came to me first. Like if you are doing a militaristic foreign policy action in another country, right? You could call it a war, right? You can call it a peacekeeping mission. You can call it nation building, right? Whatever you call it, the terms you use, the lens at which you're trying to get at this situation really is going to affect the solutions, the, the tenor of the conversation, all that kind of stuff. So talking about race theologically is an important thing, right? And it's, pointing at something, I think, particular to theology and to religion and spirituality. A theological description of reality uh, that is not an ideal reality, right? A reality that is hurtful sometimes and is harmful, I think always has to start with the conversation about this concept, sin. Okay. Sin. Many times at Root and Branch, right, we're sort of, we exist as a church that's kind of, in some ways, therapy for people who grew up harmed by the church, who had hard issues um, with some of the theologies that they were, they were raised in. Uh, we, we really want to be a space where uh, people like that can find a path to God that doesn't have that sort of harm to it. Uh, so when we talk about sin here, we often try to like get away from certain ideas of what that is, right? And so when we talk about sin, we're not talking about like doing bad stuff, right? The kind of thinking where like you do X, and you, uh, and then some like old dude, usually a man, like an old man tells you that that's wrong, and then you feel really shameful about it, and guilty, and all that kind of stuff. Like that's not the kind of sin we, um, we try to talk about here, right? Sin, as we, as is useful to me, is that sin is less about my actions, but it's more about my existence as a human being, right? 
And one way we've talked about sin here is that sin is this like separation. It's a distance, right? A distance that we find ourselves between God and us and ourselves and other people and ourselves and ourselves, right? There is this gap that exists. The word sin is really just a description of this kind of gap. It's a way to understand and acknowledge that a gap like this actually exists for us. Um, and the thing that I find useful about that, even like in a concept like original sin, is that what we get from a description like that is uh, no one can escape that reality, right? It's universal. It's part of our just being here, right? Uh, even if you're a northerner, a liberal, a good person who has a black family member, or you went to University of Chicago Divinity School, or you are a progressive or whatever, you cannot escape that reality. It's just part of it. And racism, I think, really well illustrates what that gap can look like. Um, right? When we think about racism, I mean, some of the stuff that's fundamental to the idea of this other person that I encounter is that um, this distance between us means that I, I will often fill that distance with whatever I want, right? And that's part of when you encounter somebody and you, you know, when, I, when someone meets me and they make an Asian joke to me, I know it, that reveals to me that in their mind, when they first met me, that's what they noticed, that's what they thought about, right? And that's in this conversation we're having about whatever, like food or something, still somehow that aspect is at the forefront of them filling that gap with their own thing, which is a judgment about who I might be. And so, I think that there's a way that we can think about separation that's just like a very, it's not, it, sound, it can sound kind of theoretical or like esoteric or something like that, but its manifestation is like very practical, right? For example, when we, one of the ways that we um, come to fill this gap or this separation is we uh, look at someone's clothes, right, and make assumptions about them regarding that, right? Neil and I, when we were in divinity school together, we were known... Uh, in the program as the guys who wore tight pants. That was our, that was sort of our nickname. If they were like, oh, Tim and Neil are going, oh, you mean the guys who wear tight pants, right? So there are ways like that kind of stuff, like that's, yeah, that's part of reality. We can't help but to look at things like that. We can't help but to look at things like that. We can't help but to make judgments about those sorts of things. However, uh, racism is an example of the most harmful parts of that sort of separation, right? The most harmful ways that that gap um, leads to our judgment. And so, if you think about separation, like think about what the opposite is. What, is. what would the opposite of a separated reality in existence be, right? I mean, obviously, the, it just in, like, uh, in terms of the words, right, you would think separation, the opposite of it is some sort of union, right? And if I, whenever I, whenever I try to understand like, how am I supposed to behave, it, in a context where race is like very apparent and upfront as an issue, um, how do I overcome that separation? How do I bridge that gap? Um, how do I create a union, right? That's, I think, an important question. I don't have like a great answer to it yet. I think that there's something to the idea of listening, right? There's something to the idea of a generosity in uh, how we approach things. I, I, want, I do think, like, for example, a lot of the racial discussions that were prevalent when I was a kid in the 90s, right, the idea was like, oh, uh, don't be racist because we're actually, we're, you know, it's all skin deep. We're all the same. We're actually all the same, right? 
that's that was like the the narrative of anti-racism training back in the 90s right now it's much more complicated right we know that that's a really stupid way to look at this stuff right if someone said to me like hey man i don't see you as asian or korean i i just see you as a person i'd be like well are you actually looking at me like like you know and because like so much of that stuff like and, and being older now and like having to grapple with my identity like i'm proud of those things right those things are part of who i am i'm happy um and I want to know more about my heritage and I want that all that kind of stuff to like come out and I want to take my white friends to eat Korean food because it's good and that's part of like how I grew up like I want that's part of who I am you can't say to me like no we're all the same you know uh, and so if you want to create union in that sort of context what that means is something like not uh, jumping ahead of me to assume a part of my story or jumping ahead of me to assume an aspect of who I am as a person, but allowing me to bring that to you, right? And allowing me to tell you stories about myself or my life or whatever. And in that, listening to that, um, we can sort of find a way to bridge those things, right? This is sort of one of the reasons why things like testimony and um, that sort of tradition is really important, right? That's how separation is overcome. So what that means in short is that I'm trying to get at this idea that we're all sinners. We're all sinners. And maybe that strikes you in a, in a weird way. It's possible that when you hear that, you might cringe. Like I certainly would hear that and cringe in certain contexts. Um, but I think that this is like, this really has to be an opportunity as a church, as a community to be honest with each other about those types of things, right? To me, the worst thing you could probably call me is um, uh, if you call me misogynistic or homophobic, right? These are two areas of my life that as a good progressive person, I've really tried to like overcome, um, you know, ways I grew up and the culture I was a part of and all that kind of stuff. Um, but every now and then I'm having a conversation and someone's like, damn, you're such a misogynist. I'm like, no, wait, no, I'm not. Like, and I get really like defensive and like anxious and my face will get red or something, right? And the truth of the matter is, right, I have, to, I have to be able to acknowledge the fact that wherever I've come from um, and, and gotten to a place that I, I do hope is better, uh, the real talk is that I still am in a lot of ways a misogynist or in a lot of ways still homophobic or whatever it may be. Right? These are things that uh, I can't escape just by me thinking that I'm not. Right? Uh, and I am a sinner. For that and I'm a sinner who is probably going to sin again anybody get that you got that no all right never mind it's a it's a, it's a rap lyric it says something about this crowd <laughs> okay so uh, theological question right framing it in the context of sin what are we going to do about it um, I think that's a, that's a question that we're going to have to answer progressively as we move through this, these talks we talk more about race we're going to have to answer that question. I want to venture a, a small part of what I think is important to that, though. Uh, if you take like a, I, I hesitate to use this word, but like a classic Christian theological look, um, you see that sinfulness is part of our reality, right? And so what happens after uh, we acknowledge that fact, right? Well, the second part is you generally will some, somehow confess this aspect, right? You confess your sins, right? Which is to acknowledge that reality, right? And then after you confess, 
what comes next is often repentance, right? Which is to say, I've confessed that this reality is true, and now I will repent by uh, choosing not to participate in that reality anymore, right? And then after that, there is also forgiveness, um, which is, in my opinion, forgiveness is a sort of a liberation, right? Um, a freedom from feeling shame about that sinfulness. And so, what I want to gear at the end, of, at, as I end this, this uh, talk here, is this point about confession, right? Um, confession has a really integral part of uh, not just acknowledging our sinfulness, but to make a racial conversation at all useful or fruitful for us. That that confession aspect has to be at the very uh, front of it. And I don't mean confession in the way of like, woe is me, and I'm evil, and uh, I'm filled with shame, and um, I'm going to try and act like I'm a good person for the sake of uh, that sort of thing. Like, no, um, to me, that sort of idea of confession is really a distortion of power, right? It's people who have power trying to control um, how we feel about ourselves in a certain way. But I'm talking about a confession that is humble and honest and willing to go to places that we really, really, really hate going to. Right? We really, really hate going to. Uh, the reading I have for today is from James, um, and it says this, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into de dejection. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. It's a very, uh, that's some harsh, that's some harsh words right there, right? Like, he, you know, whoever wrote that, um, is, 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 is very much straddling that border of confession, right? Which is on one, one side, um, shaming in some ways, and then on the other side, uh, actually useful and helpful for us, right? And I'm, my question in some ways today is, are we able to uh, see in a passage like that or in an idea like confession um, something that is more helpful than it is judging, um, more humbling than it is shaming, that sort of thing, right? Can we arrive at a place where a word like confession can be useful to us again, right? My sense is that that is true. I think it is, I think it is possible. And I believe that confession is, you know, it's a sobering thing. It's, um, it's really demanding of ourselves. It's, uh, you know, I've never, I, I didn't grow up Catholic. I know some of you guys here did, right? And um, to be real with you, like, I don't know how much of, like, Catholic confession is, like, from a movie or, like, people actually did that stuff. Did anyone do that? Did anyone want to raise their hand and admit that they have been in confession before? Yeah. <laughs> I won't ask you any more than that. Um, which, and so that sort of thing is like a weird, it's like a, a, a really interesting concept, right? And when I, was, when I was younger and as a good Protestant, you know, I was like, that's probably dumb. But uh, just the fundamental fact about it, like now, now, as, now as I stand now, like there's something appealing about this idea, right? I don't know about wanting to go talk to some like dude I don't really know or like some random priest in a room, but like the idea of like the practice of going to a place and being like, dude, yeah, I, I am not the best person. And there are things about me that I want to change. And I am, um, 
I'm upset about a comment I made or a thought that I had. And those things, you know, uh, the sunny side of Protestantism, we, you know, often tries to like not really go there. And I think that that's one of the issues why um, racial dynamics in mainline churches is kind of shitty, right? It's, it's a hard place to go. So that's sort of where I wanted to end this talk that we think about the idea of confession, that uh, we realize, we come to see that any conversation about race uh, truly hinges in some aspect on us being willing to go to a place like that. And um, we can't change what we aren't able to acknowledge that needs to be changed, you know. So, per our discussion today, you know, if you ever if you ever read like Huffington Post or like some of these uh, websites, and there's like an article on race, oftentimes like the comments are like locked because like the the conversation is so like toxic and and insane. Um, I was <laughs> I was thinking about that, and I was like, should I lock the comments for this? But no, I don't want to do that, right? That's not really a way for us to actually engage. So, um, what I want us to think about is this: Are there are there moments that we can think of in our lives? Um, I think particular stories or instances are the most useful. Um, where we knowingly, or not knowingly, but we, it's very clear to us that um, we chose to fill this gap between us and someone else with our own stuff. Right? Are there times that we could think of, um, and I know that that's not, uh, you know, a, an environment like this is, you know, we try to make a safe space, but I also know that it's hard to talk about some of those things, especially if you don't know the people at your table or whatever. So don't feel the need to like have to share or whatever. But if anybody is willing to um, confess, as it were, in some ways, uh, it doesn't have to be about race, right? I mean, look, this these issues are are existent when it comes to uh, sexual dynamics and uh, economic dynamics and all that kind of stuff, right? So it could be anything like that, right? Uh, yeah, I judge every every time I every time I go on a date, I always say, "What kind of music do you listen to?" And it's right there. I just know already, like what. So like, yeah, it, I do that stuff all the time, right? But um, so that's like a, a joking way you could tell a story about something like that. So it doesn't have to be super like heavy and like, oh my god, I did this terrible thing. But like, yeah, stories like that where we could think of ourselves, sort of. Um, uh, not being open and listening to people as well. Does that make sense?